Hello, Earthlings. Welcome back to the podcast. This week, we sit down with guest Jim Lark so that we can take a deep dive into the personal philosophy and ideology of the libertarian mind in Libertarian B. Libertarian. I don't understand. What's the concept? You just sit around and just talk to people. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, so the podcast stupid. is literally called All We Do Is Talk. Or, or yeah. you can just say Jim Lark if you didn't hear me. I'm, I'm easy. Okay. <laughs> the only thing, it, it, in case you're not aware, people who have the third or right. junior in many cases are very particular about how their names are written instead okay. of writing that you know, if, if you said james lark or jim lark or james w lark the third but not jim lark the third or james lark the third right. we can be really picky about those things okay you're a professor of engineering it's is the i i serve i have uh, two appointments one in the Department of Engineering Science, or excuse me, Environment. Actually, we've changed the name so much here. It's now called um, Engineering Systems and Environment, okay. ESE. Uh, I also have an appointment in the Applied Math Program in the Department of Engineering and Society, both within the School of Engineering here at the University of Virginia. I also have affiliated faculty status with the Department of Statistics. Okay. Wow, that's a lot of hats. I feel like you're with <laughs> do they overlap at all, or do you? Uh, uh, sort of. Um, I mean, the uh, I teach uh, several courses in systems engineering. I teach a lot of applied math classes, mostly statistics. Uh, I actually had a full-time appointment in the Department of Statistics, but because most of the statistics classes I was teaching were actually to engineering students, eventually my full appointment was moved over from the Department of Statistics, which is actually in the college, over to the School of Engineering and Applied Science. Okay, interesting. Glad that you had time to sit down and talk. I know this is busy. This is right in the middle of exams. We've kind of been playing a little bit of email tag. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think I'd love to just launch right into uh, sort of kind of what I, I talked to when I went to the Libertarian Salon. I think it was a very eye-opening experience for me because I'd only really ever talked to my father about it and he just has one kind of outlook. And... Um, and that is a big part of libertarianism is that there's lots of different kind of people approach. They come to the table in a lot of different ways. Very so. much so. In fact, uh, one of the things that Dr. Morgan, who was, of course, our host at the salon, mm -hmm. one of the things that she, a point that she tries to make is that there's a true extraordinary degree of heterogeneity among libertarians. There's a sentiment, of course, if you're outside the libertarian community, perhaps the, there's a tendency to think that all libertarians look alike. Right. And it turns out that like most philosophical movements, there are actually a fair degree of heterogeneity. You have libertarians who come to this perspective from very much what one would consider a conservative, perhaps a right-wing perspective. However, a couple of my really good friends in the liberty movement were actually Trotskyists in their younger days. Okay. Uh, you get people who come to the libertarian perspective, individual liberty coupled with personal responsibility from many different directions. Right. And each person has, a, at least those with whom I've spoken, have a very interesting path to how they got to where they ultimately ended up. Right. So it seems to me that it, as a being drawn towards the individual liberty and personal responsibility could be a reaction to almost any number of stimuli that affect you and making it feel like you are losing your personal liberty. So that, it could be. That's true. Um, although in my case, um, I, I was fortunate. I chose my parents wisely. I wanted the best, and that's what I got. And my parents were good, salt-of-the-earth people who believed very strongly that you should be able to live your life pretty much your way. However, you're not allowed to violate the like rights of your neighbors. You should be a good neighbor. Uh, they also believed in helping your neighbors, but not basically forcing anyone else to help your neighbors. And so I grew up at the dinner table, if you will, with a, with a philosophy of individual liberty coupled with the notion of personal responsibility. And my parents were not intellectuals in the, in the sense that's usually used here at the Charlottesville community. They were not well-credentialed. They were educated, but not well-credentialed. And so it was not a, an articulated philosophy. My father didn't, my mother didn't have a name for this philosophy. It was just basically the way you lived your life. You tried to respect the rights of others, and you should be able to pretty much pursue your own vision, your own dreams, as long as you don't hurt other people. Okay. So you kind of, then you were sort of raised from the beginning with yes, this type of philosophy. although I was not, I was not interested in what might, one might consider the political aspects of libertarian philosophy. 
In fact, if you told my high school buddies that Jim Lark would grow up to be the chair of the third largest political party in the United States, they wouldn't have laughed at you, but they would have thought that a bit odd because my principal passions as a younger man were uh, basketball and soccer, and to some extent still are. Uh, I was a jock in my younger days, and like a lot of men my age, the older I get, the better I used to be. And so I really was not interested in politics. I didn't participate in partisan political activity. I kept up with it. I voted, but I've never seen politics as particularly interesting, either as a spectator sport or as something that I wanted to be involved with. It was only after I I became interested in a more, shall we say, a more formal philosophy of liberty, and after I noticed that my liberties were eroding at a rapid pace, that I saw that I actually needed to get involved in the more political aspects of this. Uh, by the way, I hate politics. It should be noted, I, I hate politics. I'd much rather be carrying on a discussion about good food or beer or sports or perhaps beer, uh, perhaps even beer. Um, but I'm, I'm hopelessly bourgeois. I'm a creature of duty. And when I see other people fighting for liberty and responsibility, I can't sit on the sideline. I feel I have to be up on the firing line with them. I have to be willing to put my own you know, life, liberty, and property, my blood, sweat, and tears on the line. I can't ask other people to do it for me. Right. So when would you say that you kind of pivoted more towards that? That sort it of, was, I should be on the front uh, It was actually, I, I actually give some, some credit to Milton Friedman, who used to have articles in Newsweek magazine. I remember uh, during the summer of 1976, I was uh, with a friend of mine, and we were chatting about the Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment Bill, the original Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment Bill, um, my initial reaction upon hearing about the Humphrey Hawkins full employment bill was, well, full employment, that sounds like a good idea. It was not a particularly reflective view. And then I read Milton Friedman's article about it, and was uh, I was frankly quite embarrassed because Professor Friedman utterly shredded the justification for this proposed legislation. And I was quite embarrassed. I was this hotshot mathematician who basically you know, flattered himself with the conceit that he was a reasonably bright boy, and I realized that I hadn't come up with this. Professor Friedman showed me that I really was quite ignorant. And so I figured if I'm going to, if I'm going to flatter myself with the conceit that I'm a reasonably bright boy, I better start reading, I better start thinking. And more and more as I, as I began looking around, and frankly, as I got older, I just saw that there were things going on in terms of American political life that I found disconcerting, if not troubling. And that was basically more and more government was taking responsibility for the things that I thought should be really the appropriate role of the private sector, the civil sector, civil society. Um, I found that government in many cases was not doing a very good job of helping people, and it was doing it at a very substantial cost. I also found, and this is something that took a while, I realized eventually that government actually, big government, overly expensive, overly intrusive, government had a corrosive effect on what I call real community. I actually believe very strongly if some poor slob needs assistance that, that we ought to help people. I think it's important to help our neighbors, but I have no right to force other people. And when government steps in, in many cases, to provide ostensibly to provide relief, in many cases, it actually breaks down the bonds of community. It basically releases people in many cases, or they feel released from their responsibilities to help others. And this is one of my biggest criticisms of overly large, overly intrusive, overly expensive government, is it actually tends not to build community, but to break it down. So you think that there's a, is that, would it make sense for me to say that there's like a directness from the help that you think providing your neighbors? I and do. that when you have to go sort of through this third party, or when the rules and the, and the methods are being dictated by this other group, that that suddenly puts the people. I think you. I think you've made a. I think you've made a very good point. Um, and indeed, one must be careful. I mean, any sort of, and this could be private uh, charitable institutions. If you simply say, "Well, I'm just going to give to private charitable institutions," one can, in some sense, launder one's responsibility. So it's not just a governmental issue. It could be that you know you basically want to have other people do your your your, your job for you. But it's much worse, I think, when government does it, because first of all, it's compulsory. You do not have a choice in, you, you can't simply say, I think I'll withhold my contribution this year. If right. you do that, by the way, there's a good chance you'll end up in the pokey. 
Um, and I think that government is a blunt instrument. It can do certain things reasonably well, but it simply doesn't have the information that it needs to deal with what I consider to be the major problems of the human society. I think that the only way we can have a, at least a fighting chance of dealing with some of these problems is through what we call civil society, the private, voluntary, charitable impulses of people. For whatever it's worth, I believe most people are pretty decent. They're not angelic, they're not heroic, but they're pretty decent. They want good things not only for themselves but for others. And I think if we had a society based upon the libertarian vision of individual liberty coupled with personal responsibility, we would actually have a much better society. We'd have a much more caring society. We'd have much more true community of the sort that I spoke of earlier. Okay. But you're coming from – here's an interesting thing that I pick up on. It's just that if you come from this place, this belief that people are this way, if people are rooted in thinking the opposite of what you think, that people are – always out for their own thing or they're very cynical and they think that people are even even if they don't think people are evil if they think people are at least self-centered and short-sighted or whatever um how do you come to the table with that outlook well that's uh, first of all there's no doubt that there are people who are evil and short-sighted and incidentally if that were actually a if that were actually much more reflective of the way people actually are it strikes me that that's an even stronger argument against giving government the power that it <laughs> yeah. now has yeah. if indeed people are that short-sighted if indeed they are not charitable if they are only in it for themselves it strikes me that that's an extremely strong argument against the big government programs right. that are advocated so um i think that my my view is a matter of fact i don't think it it depends on the notion that all people are are good or even most people are good i think that one makes i think one can make a really strong argument on purely prudential grounds purely practical grounds that we need to emphasize individual liberty and personal responsibility regardless of the nature of how people are if indeed people are self-centered na- nasty vicious whatever whatever phrase you want to use the one thing I think we have to do is to restrain their ability to use force, and government basically is legalized force. Right. So do you think that that uh, – I know that some other libertarians would say that one of the only rules of government is sort of that force, like being military, being police, right. or at least protecting borders, enforcing contracts, that type of thing. Yes, you are absolutely right. And indeed, uh, let, me, let me make very clear, I'm not a pacifist. I, I, I do not object to the use of force. Uh, you know, on all, on, in all occasions. What I object to is basically what I consider to be force inappropriately applied. And in the case of uh, the vast majority of what government now does, in my opinion, that use of force is, is, is completely improper. It's improper on moral grounds. In other words, government does things, a lot of things, that I don't believe it has any business doing. But also on purely practical grounds, I think that the use of government in many ways just doesn't do a very good job of dealing with the major problems of human condition. And I think it's safe to say that most libertarians would say, look, government, if you're going to give it power, you need to make sure that the the circumstances are ones that overwhelmingly justify the use of force. In other words, if we're going to have this thing called government, its powers should be limited and enumerated. They should be very clearly defined, and they should only be used. Government should only be allowed to use force in cases where we're talking about the protection of rights. Now, of course, people have different conceptions about what those rights are, and in many right. cases, that's what a lot of the big political arguments uh, are, are over. It, just in general or within the libertarian community? Uh, within, the, within, within the broader community. But right. within, within the libertarian community, there's a wide variety of viewpoints on exactly when can force be used. In fact, I, I've given a, a, a lecture on many occasions, um, in particularly in Europe, about uh, the challenges that the libertarian perspective had. Many people who do not consider themselves libertarians perhaps uh, disagree with libertarians. It's not because they, they are bad people. It's because they have perfectly legitimate questions about how would a libertarian society operate. And there are many, there are many questions where people of goodwill, people of intelligence, can reasonably disagree on the application of libertarian principles. Um, indeed, <laughs> I, I sometimes make a pain in the rear of myself among my fellow libertarians because I point out that 
we libertarians don't necessarily agree on things, including property rights. And of course, property rights, I think one could make the argument, sort of the bedrock, no possible pun or double entendre intended, of the libertarian perspective. Well, we of libertarian disposition don't necessarily agree on the justification for the principles or the application of those principles. So even we libertarians frequently will have disagreements about how um, how we actually have rights or how rights are defined with respect to property. It's not fair of us to be snotty about these things when it comes to people who are not self-identified libertarians. Sometimes reasonable people will look at the same facts and they'll come to very different conclusions. Okay, I want to I want to bring that idea that you just said um, down to a smaller scale in terms of property rights because one thing that I'm curious about I'm not super well versed in the history of this but I, I think that early organization in America there was a lot of problems with states disagreeing over borders and rivers things like that in terms of trade and a lot of the regulations that went around that that was like a big part of contention uh, especially just in their debate and and then and what roles government had and what power and stuff and so for for your libertarian perspective at least um now that we're not talking about sort of the military or not military is not the right word but the use of force but just the just the enforcement of regulation side does that do you think that the role of government enters into that in a libertarian perspective if, if i understand your your question appropriately the answer is yes i mean you have to if government has any legitimacy at all mm-hmm. it is to protect rights in other words I think people come together and form governments. I do not feel that government has any organic existence. Governments are instituted among people. We, the people, the polity, we empower government to do certain things. To my way of thinking, the only appropriate role of government is is that institution which we have deputized to protect our rights. We realize that the world is full of predation. It's a dangerous place. We set up this thing called government to protect our rights both against internal predation or external predation. And by the way, I'm, I'm simpl- oversimplifying somewhat. There are situations where people of goodwill will have legitimate differences of opinion, say, of, over where, whether a contract has been satisfied. So some sort of adjudication mechanism, a court system, uh, arbitration system, I think is, is perfectly appropriate. Again, even people who basically agree on, <laughs> say, 99% of issues— can have disagreements, mm-hmm. legitimate disagreements, over what does a contract say, what does this regulation say. Um, we of libertarian disposition, we do not anticipate that a libertarian society will deal with all of these issues right. or that will necessarily deal with all of them in a way that we would like. The point I would make is I think that societies based on those principles are likely to be at, l- at least as good as what we now have or what any conceivable alternative arrangement would produce and I think in many ways, a libertarian society would be a lot better. But there are always going to be contentions, even among people who largely agree on basic issues, basic philosophy, basic description of rights. So in your, in your uh, if, if in the ideal at least, I don't know if this is the realistic, but in the ideal libertarian government structure, there would still be sort of that executive representational judicial balance? I'm, I'm not sure exactly how the forms would, would take place. One of the beauties, by the way, that I see in a general libertarian perspective is that it admits a bewildering variety of diversity of forms. Libertarians can agree, or let me rephrase that, people can agree to all manner of different types of rules, regulations, uh, you can have, in a, in, under the libertarian framework, you can have a society that is completely communistic. If people have agreed that they're going to hold their property in common, that, they, that they're going to make all decisions communally, that you have to have uniformity, uh, unanimity, that you could do it with, with simple majority, whatever. You could have all manner of institutional forms as long as people have basically agreed to, to be bound by those rules. Um, the way I like to, I, I sometimes refer to myself as a rational constitutional anarchist in that I believe, I believe that people will form these things called governments, mm-hmm. but the governments should be basically deputized to respect rights, that the rights exist prior to the formation of government. Governments are there. They're deputized by the polity to protect their rights against both internal predation or internal problems and external predation. And so... Uh, from my perspective, I think that you would you would see many, many different communities with many, many different organizational forms, all of which would be able to coexist peacefully. 
as long as there's a basic recognition of what's thine and what's mine. Typically, I refer it to real property. In other words, that's right. your side of the meadow, this is my side of the meadow. Now, unfortunately, uh, not everybody agrees with my conception of what the appropriate means for uh, dividing up property happen to be. And indeed, as I mentioned previously, even among people who are self-identified libertarians, people whom I would call libertarians, there are different justifications for having and holding real property. How do you acquire it? How do you maintain it? Uh, how do you demarcate it? And so um, <laughs> uh, libertarian discussions about these things can actually be quite heated, and you can have, again, many different people looking at things from, from different perspectives. Yeah, I think well, just to, to harken back to when I came to the salon, I think one of the things that we talked about that seemed to be very heated in terms of everyone Everyone seemed to have very similar outlooks on personal property and that that was important. But I think the outlooks on what is the point of, of the property, like is growth sort of the goal or sustainability sort of the goal, those types of things seem to be very debated even amongst that small group. You're absolutely correct. And indeed, if you were to go, if uh, there, there's an old joke, if you go to a meeting of 10 libertarians, you'll usually obtain at least 11 different opinions about, <laughs> about whatever issues being said. And that does not, by the way, distinguish us. I mean, most philosophical movements have these have these different discussions. I mean, people who come from very different traditions, socialist traditions, for example, they frequently have tremendous disagreements about how do you interpret the basic rules, what are the basic rights. So I think people who are who are inclined to take ideas seriously about about society, about the role of liberty, of role of property in society, they're going to have disagreements, and right. so it, it's it, that's just the way the ball bounces. Yeah, it seems more than anything libertarianism as uh, what kind of binds that group together seems to be a general love of the examination of what is basic rights and how are basic rights preserved. Well, I've always looked at it. I think you make, a, again, a very astute point. I've always looked at this as I try very, very hard to be fair to other people. And if I'm going to examine their ideas with a critical idea, I have to be willing to examine my own ideas with the same sort of withering scrutiny that I would apply to others. I really think it's important for us to be people uh, who uphold the highest level of intellectual integrity. And that's one of the reasons why, by the way, I enjoy the, uh, the salon a great deal, uh, because I think that those people who are there actually are committed to trying to maintain a very high degree of intellectual integrity. They are willing to examine their own ideas with the same degree of scrutiny that they bring to bear on those with whom they think they disagree. Yes, I definitely, I agree that one thing that was very lacking in the salon was rhetoric. It seemed to mostly be focused around discussion, debate. It didn't, it didn't feel like I was in a group that had, was just trying to perpetuate a very specific kind of, you know, series of sentences that they just said all the time about, you know, certain things and stances. It seemed like it seemed like it was actively about trying to understand the flaws in other people's thinking, their own thinking. It was very active. It was a great debate and discussion. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And of course, you were, uh, if, if I may compliment you, you were a very fine participant in that discussion. You added a great deal to it. To me, it's just a matter of respecting other people. I, I try to show respect and courtesy to others. If I want people to take me seriously, I have to take them seriously. If I want people to be fair to me, I have to be fair to them. And in fact, I, I feel I have to bend over backwards to be fair, particularly to people with whom I may disagree. Uh, it's easy to be fair. It's easy to be nice to the people with whom you agree. It's much harder to try to exhibit that same degree of fairness to those with whom you feel you have disagreements. Uh, I also think that if you uphold the highest standards of integrity, if you treat people with courtesy, respect, and integrity, they will usually respond in the same way. And if nothing else, we'll be able to come to an agreement on where we really disagree. One of the biggest right. problems that libertarians have in a political marketplace is that in so many cases, people have these very bad caricatures about what, oh, you libertarians believe. Well, you libertarians don't care about the poor. You don't care about the environment. I, from my experience, that's just not true. Libertarians are actually very keen in their belief in helping other people, in protecting the environment. It's just we may have different ways of dealing with it, and we may have different ways of expressing ourselves. So if uh, something such as the salon or a discussion of a sort we're having 
if I can help clear away misconceptions about what I believe, about what libertarians believe in general, I feel that I've done, I've performed a valuable service because let's not waste time arguing about, about over bad caricatures or stereotypes. Let's actually focus upon the areas where perhaps we do have disagreement. Maybe we can find ways of coming to agreement. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that sort of stereotyping uh, of the of the libertarian character, because I think the word I used a lot at the salon was cartoonified. Yes. There's a sort of cartoonification of libertarians. I mean, that's true of a lot of things, especially in pop culture. There's there's always a lot of cartoonifications of a lot of bigger concepts and people. But I think especially libertarians. Um, and one thing that I found myself in within myself, just looking in, I was like, I kind of also had a cartoonified idea of, a lib- of libertarianism. And I was kind of like, oh yeah, I don't, I haven't really taken the time to look into depth in this. And that's one of the reasons I think, which prompted me wanting to do this episode on the podcast, but also come to the salon and really dig into it. Well, you raise a, you raise a very, very important point. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you did, because first of all, <laughs> unfortunately, we have libertarian disposition. Sometimes we make it easy for us to be cartoonified because... <laughs> One of the problems is, in some cases, it's easy to substitute slogans for real thought. Um, and again, I, my knee jerks violently at all manner of stimuli. And there have been times where I've been tempted to respond to a comment or a criticism with a ready-made slogan. But I, fortunately, I think I've been able to keep my knee from jerking at least too violently. I genuinely try to understand what other people are saying and to try to see, even if, I, even if they've expressed themselves poorly or badly, even if they have what I consider to be a very unfair stereotype or caricature, I try to ask the question, look, is there a kernel of truth here that with which I must deal? Are they actually saying something, even if they haven't said it particularly well, are they saying something, are they articulating something that I really should respond to and respond to honestly? So I try very hard to, if, if people have what I consider to be a caricature of libertarian perspective, I try very hard to understand, first of all, what, what are they really saying, and then to try to address whatever concerns they have as honestly as I can. And I feel that mo- most libertarians, I think, at heart, do really want to, they want to understand, and they want to understand other people. But unfortunately, there are times where some members of the libertarian community make it very easy for us yeah. to be stereotyped. Right. Some and, unnamed who will remain unnamed. Yeah, uh, there are lots of, of people. There, the there are lots of people who who uh, could could be identified in this fashion, but right because we, we're gentlemen, we will we, we won't, won't we don't need to do that. We yeah. won't drop um, their names. <laughs> but speaking of that, I it's I one thing I really appreciate in the way that you're talking about this philosophy is how personal you always reference it. That you always talk about how people coming together, you talking to one other person. Um, and even though we've been talking about libertarianism for like 30 minutes now, you haven't, it hasn't been necessary for you to mention it as a political party or any sort of national scale or like, you know, platform versus others be like, this separates us from these other parties. So I'd love to expand it a little bit too, because you have experience um, sitting, what exactly was your role in the organization of the National Party? Well, I, I, I serve as a member of the Libertarian National Committee, which is the governing board of the Libertarian Party. I've, I think I'm now in my 10th term. Uh, during my second term, I had the honor of actually serving as the national chair of the Libertarian Party, the chair of the Libertarian National Committee, which is the chair of the Libertarian Party. The way I put it is they couldn't find anyone good, so they got stuck with me. <laughs> and I say, that, I say that somewhat jokingly. I'm flattered to say most people seem to regard my chairmanship as a step forward for the party. They feel that I've been given a lot of credit for helping us through what was a difficult time, including 9-11, by the way. Oh, wow. Um, that was your second year? Was that, was, that, was, okay. that was 2001 during my term. I, was, I had the honor of serving as chair during the 2000-2002 term. And uh, the, I, I've also been involved in other libertarian organizations, movement organizations. Uh, there's an organization called the Advocates for Self-Government, which tries to explain and promote these ideas. I had the honor of serving as the chair of the board of directors from 2009 to 2016. I am um, the secretary of the board of directors of Liberty International, which is a long-lived libertarian international organization. I'm on the board of advisors for Students for Liberty. Um, so I, I have my fingers in a lot of different libertarian pies. Let me note, incidentally, that the libertarian... <laughs> Libertarians frequently, you'll sometimes see libertarian with a capital L and sometimes with a lowercase l. 
And this is cause <laughs> this is a cause for some uh, confusion, uh, some amusement. Uh, many people reserve capital L to refer to those people who are self-identified Libertarian Party people, whereas lowercase L means more the movement, because there are many people who are self-identified Libertarians or they're people I call libertarian adjective. In other words, they don't, they don't identify themselves as libertarians, but their basic mode of analysis would fit neatly under the libertarian rubric. Uh, those people are not necessarily involved with any political party. If they decide to be involved in politics at all, it may be through issue politics as opposed to partisan political organizations. The libertarian party, many of those people who are self-identified as libertarians, if they're involved in politics at all, it may be with one of the older legacy parties, the Democrats and Republicans. So among people who are, are libertarians, either adjective or noun, um, actually a fairly small fraction of them are involved in libertarian party. And this is not really hard to understand because libertarians by their very nature, if you subscribe to a general libertarian perspective, you're not going to look to politics as a way of dealing with the major problems of society. Because it's too it, removed. It's, 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 as well as it's just not something you really want to be involved with. It, in some cases, libertarians look at politics as this is a dirty business. Uh, in order to be involved, you have to compromise. Um, in some cases, it's, people realize that being involved in politics is hard work. Most libertarians I've met simply want to live their lives in peace and harmony with their neighbors. They don't seek political power. They do not wish to advance themselves by the use of politics. And so there's, a, I think, a natural bias for most libertarians to say, look, I, I just don't want to be involved with this. And politics, by the way, is hard work. Um, there's a, uh, let me digress briefly. Many people talk about, oh, those lazy, those lazy people in Congress, you know, they're a bunch of, free, you know, they're just a bunch of dreadful people. Right. I wish to God these people were lazy. Unfortunately, they spend far too much time sticking their nose into the business of other people. Um, Politics is hard work, and I think many people just of libertarian disposition just don't want to be involved. Also, once you get involved in politics, particularly at the local level, many of these catchphrases that we libertarians like to use about you know, rights, well, in many cases, when you actually have to make decisions, if you're in a position of responsibility, say as a city councilor, a board of you know, a board of supervisors member, member of the United States House of Representatives, now you have to make decisions about real resources where the property rights or the moral issues are not nearly as clear as you might want them to be, particularly at the local level. When you deal, when you deal with all manner of issues of nuisance or disturbance, again, reasonable people, even those who come from basically the same background, may have very different views about how to resolve these issues. It would be, it's very hard in many cases for libertarians to be elected, particularly at the local level, because you, don't, you can't go to the book of libertarianism and look up the right answer. Many of these questions that we have are genuinely hard. This is one, another reason, I should say, why I want, to be, I want to try to extend the benefit of the doubt to people with whom I have disagreements. There are plenty of people, for example, in the greater Albemarle County area who actually have served in positions, say, of the Board of Supervisors, where I would have strong disagreements with them. I think they're wrong in many of their decisions, but I understand that they had to make difficult decisions where sometimes it wasn't immediately obvious what the right answer happened to be. So I always try, in, in terms of analyzing the behavior of others, particularly elected representatives or, in that matter, for that matter, bureaucrats, to say sometimes they have to make hard decisions where it's not quite so clear what the right answer should right, be. Right. And so I, I want to circle back really quickly because you mentioned uh, this is why it's hard for libertarians to get elected, especially at the local level. So when you're referring to that, do you mean like the capital L Libertarian Party libertarians? I mean or do you both. you just mean people in I, the ideology? That's an you excellent question. I mean okay. both because, first of all, uh, let me, again, digress a little bit. There are many of my colleagues in the Libertarian Party who they have said they feel most people are really libertarians, they just don't know it yet. And there, there's a certain, there's a kernel of truth to that, but I think that it's, I, I think it's a bit overblown. I don't think that it applies nearly to the extent that they might like. And in terms of, of understanding 
where we want to go. I think most people in society, they actually have a preference for liberty, all things being equal, but they have very real questions about if we changed fundamentally the way we look at this institution called government, would things deteriorate? Would we actually have a society that is both good and just? And if you are, if you're in a society where you've never seen how certain goods or services can be provided purely privately, purely through acts of charity, it's going to take some convincing to say, let's move from where we are to where we want to be. And I actually think most Americans are in many ways very conservative. They actually want to see if we're going to move from where we are, if you you libertarians, if you had your magic wand, if you want to move us from here to there by changing fundamentally the relationship between the, the people and their government, they want to see signs that things are going to get better. And so I think there's a natural reluctance for people to say to libertarians, okay, we're willing to, we're willing to put you in positions of responsibility. Now, the, the challenge, by the way, it's, it's the responsibility of those who are libertarians to show why we think these would be better moves. To move in a libertarian direction would actually make things better. People don't owe us anything. It's our job to convince them. It's our job to provide good evidence that if we move in this direction, things are going to be better. And so I think it's difficult both for small L libertarians, regardless of their political affiliation, and big L libertarians to to gain a lot of traction. We also, it should be noted, that we are in a political system where the very nature of our voting system tends to bias things toward a duopoly. In other words, we have mostly first-past-the-post voting. Uh, We have a situation where we have single-member plurality voting districts which tends, I think, to bias things toward two parties sort of competing or rushing toward the center, which makes it difficult for parties that have what are perceived as very different notions, in many cases, from gaining traction. You also have the situation where the Democrats and Republicans get to make the rules for everybody else. And I'll give you a little tip. They don't always play fair. Oh, yeah, very super shocking. <laughs> yes, I, I can I can see I, I can see the look of We're, incredulity you on your face. Pulled the wool, there. yeah, from it, my eyes here. Exactly, <laughs> and it's it's when you combine that with the fact that by and large most libertarians again don't like politics. Right. They don't want to be involved in politics. Um, and when you combine that with yet another factor, and that is most libertarians who are in politics, and this includes me, we are at best talented amateurs in a professional's game. And the professionals are very, very good at what they do. And so it is very difficult for candidates, libertarian candidates, many of whom have no governmental experience, to actually compete against people who, in many cases, are much more disposed toward being involved in politics. It makes it difficult for us, first of all, to find candidates and then to have them run good campaigns. Right. And do you think, one thing that seems to to stick out to me is just do you think that it's almost – this is – I'm asking your personal opinion. I don't want this to be indicative of anyone else. But do you think that it's almost uh, almost kind of inhibiting to have both the ideology trying to be spread and be talked about in a great – you know, in a very comforting setting and also to have the party at the same time? Because it seems to me – and I'm just going to go a little bit on this. So, And I'm going to make a bad analogy. But in terms of like religion is a lot like this, at least in the way that I seem to understand it, is a lot of times ideology – comes about you know it kind of comes up as a response to a lot of things and people discuss it and then there's a methodology that comes behind it that's with the structure and a lot of times uh, down the line they split you know and sometimes at the beginning they probably also split because some people are like oh well that's not that's not how I would have done it I thought we were both thinking the same thing and do you think that libertarianism struggles with that type of thing I think the answer is yes Uh, I think that any any ideological philosophy, and again, it's not just libertarianism. If you look to, shall we say, other intellectual traditions right. that are competing in the political marketplace, they have the same, they have exactly the same problems. Yeah. People who are ideologically motivated, in many cases, tend to, <laughs> they, they tend to see bright lines, whereas many of our friends and neighbors may not see lines at all, or at least right. very blurred lines. And again, I keep going back to this point. In many cases, Issues of rights, property, and the like are not nearly as well-defined as we might like. And reasonable people 
who share a basic common set of values can come, small, small philosophical differences can actually lead to very large public policy differences. And so this is one of the reasons why when I have the honor of talking to libertarians, particularly libertarian students, I try to impress upon them the importance of trying to be, again, scrupulously honest, fair, trying to set the highest standards of integrity so that we can actually understand where, if there are disagreements, where are those disagreements so that we would have a better chance of perhaps, if not actually solving the disagreements, at least coming to a point where we can find ways of making things better. Right. So to you, if I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly, the discussion is much more important well, I guess this is kind of unfair to say, but is definitely at least equally as important as the actual political structure. I believe so. I think the, trying I think, to make this third party and all that kind of stuff. I think that you have to give people a reason why they should put their trust in you. If, if I stood for office, I think it would be incumbent upon me to explain to people why they should be willing to put me in a position of responsibility. And I owe it to them to be scrupulously honest about my background about the things that motivate me? Do I have any interests, material interests, in pursuing particular particular uh, policies? I think that I need to be scrupulously honest with people. Uh, and I, I, by the way, I have this, this notion, perhaps a silly notion, that ultimately honesty is the best policy, that you tell people that ultimately if you are honest with people, if you're fair with them, if you treat them with courtesy and respect, they'll listen to you. And I feel that in a fair fight, liberty and personal responsibility, that combination will ultimately be the preferential option. So not only do I think that honesty is the best policy from a moral perspective, but I think purely from a prudential perspective, if you want people to take you seriously, if you want people to be willing to trust you, you have to be worthy of their trust, which means you have to be open and honest with them about what motivates you to say, look, this is the way we've been doing things, I think we we libertarians have a better way. And then the responsibility is upon us to articulate why we think that and to provide people with good evidence that it is indeed the case. Well, it seems like the philosophy is very sound, but if you if you're trying to you know what I mean like it I mean maybe that's an oversimplification, but it it's not it doesn't sound like anything that sounds like overthrowing a system that exists. You know, there's no there's nothing radical in anything that you're talking about. Um, but when you translate when that translates to policy it seems to be, do you think that libertarians, and I'm going to use capital L libertarians, do you think they have trouble establishing policy, like a more hard, you know, kind of hard stances on policy, both domestic and foreign? The, 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 short, answer, the short answer is I don't know. The longer, more nuanced answer is I don't know, but I have some, I have some ideas. I think that my, pers- my view, and again, this is sort of seat-of-the-pants empiricism, is that most people just simply want to live their lives. They want to raise their children. They, they want to be able to attend to their jobs, their enthusiasms. They really don't get caught up in a lot of philosophical discussions about what is the proper role of government. They simply want to have a system which seems to work reasonably well, where you don't have chaos in the streets, where you don't have people you know, who are, are ill and dying just sort of keeling over in the streets. They want to have a system where they feel it's basically fair if somebody violates their rights that the, those, the, the perpetrators of the violations are going to be brought to justice. Uh, I think most people realize that perfection is not an option, utopia is not an option, but they simply, they simply want the system to work reasonably well. They have some basic notions of fairness, what's right, and they'd like to see those in operation. But they don't really get wrapped up in terms of some of the finery of political discourse about what are rights, how are, the, you know, how are they defined, how do, you, how do you determine which rights are appropriate, and the like. So I think that all philosophically or ideologically inclined groups have some difficulty explaining to people. Uh, again, there's also this conservatism. If, you, if, you, if people perceive the system as, okay, it's, it, it's flawed in some ways, but it's basically working, they're going to have a fairly high bar in terms of deciding I want to change it. So I think it makes it very difficult for libertarians who are in many ways arguing, at least if you look over the last hundred years, we're arguing for a very different perspective on what is the proper relationship between the individual and the state. I think it makes it hard for people 
to see, first of all, what is it we want to do? We have to articulate again, where do we want to go? And then in many cases, since people haven't seen societies like that, they don't know how they will operate, they are naturally cautious about any sort of radical change or what they perceive as radical change. And again, yeah, and then of course, when things are sort of cartoonified, it's hard to even know that something isn't as radical and that it sort of just aligns with a lot of your own philosophies as it is. Well, there's also the point, and we, we should always keep in mind that thinking involves energy. It takes time to think things through. It's also a dangerous process because if you examine your perspective carefully, rigorously, you may find that you don't like your, your own system, your own perspective. It's, so it's, in some ways, it's a dangerous thing to do. A lot of people, I think, for, uh, for understandable reasons, perhaps don't necessarily want to spend a lot of time examining their own, po- their own politics because they might find that they don't like what they're doing. Hmm, that's, a re- that's a really good point. I think that is, there's a lot of truth in that, in that people do sometimes shy away from someone asking them to engage in a very self-reflective discussion because they already sort of know that they're like, I, I already sort of know that if I dig into this, I'm prop. There's some stuff I just actively don't think about. That let, comes let me with let me sh- that you, you bring up a very good point. Let me share. Uh, I don't know if your listeners will care about it, but let me share a, a point. Many years ago, when I when I was chair of the Libertarian Party, I went down to visit my youngest brother in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, and this was around Christmas time. The local Libertarians got together because the national chair was passing through. And we were discussing, this was at the end of the Clinton administration, and I made a comment to this group of people. It was a very informal gathering, and I made a comment, something about how I wish the American people had more more understanding of Bill Clinton's infidelities, not to his wife, but to the Constitution. And this crusty old libertarian great guy said, Jim, they don't want to know. And it was a a very simple but very powerful point. And it, it... to expand upon it, if people knew about these violations, then they'd have to do something or they'd have to face the fact that they didn't even though they knew something had to be done. Right. And uh, I, since I always look to movies, by the way, there's a, there's a wonderful scene in the, the great film Judgment at Nuremberg where Spencer Tracy is talking to two Germans about what it was like to live under Hitler. And it was fascinating to see the comment about the extent to which Many Germans didn't want to know what was going on to their neighbors because then they'd have to do something about it. And I think that there is a tendency in American political life, again, it's not just America, I mean, throughout the world. In some cases, I think people don't want to be reflective because they may find that they now have to do something about it. And that might be very dangerous. Uh, either to their mental health or to other parts of their uh, existence. Right. Yeah, it's funny that you bring up the Germany thing because I also I have a friend who lives in Germany, and, and when I visited him when I was about 16, we walked through a park that had a lot of these older people there wandering around, and he kind of was like, you know, it's interesting to think that like almost all these people were stormtroopers. And I was like, I was like, wow, you know, like that was, you know, 16, I wasn't really thinking that in depth into that kind of stuff. And so we got into a little bit of a conversation about it, And I was like, and we were kind of talking about how people just didn't know. And then he mentioned just what you're saying. He said, well, really, they just didn't want to know. You know what I mean? They had so much purpose in taking care of their families and doing all this stuff that they they sort of knew, you know, that that they weren't thinking about the whole of it. But it was not something they were prioritizing. And he said, you know this because none of these people are still fighting for that ideology. You know, when you like when they were confronted with it in depth, they were they didn't stick to it because they knew they knew if they ever had to fully confront it, they were going to be like, of course, it wasn't right. You know, and he said, and that's that's more indicative to him of of the of the time and the culture than anything else. It's like they're not they're not still wandering around with that sort of like we did. We, you know, we were fine. We were totally justified. And, and of course, at, at that point in, in that part period of history, trying to fight against something you knew was wrong was very likely to get you killed. So, exactly, yeah. uh, and I bring this up, by the way, not as a criticism of people, but as an observation. I yeah. think that there are many times where people, again, libertarians, and, and not just libertarians, but people who are ideologically inclined, in many cases, we ask questions that it's going to take a lot of time to think about, and right. you may not like the answers that you right. come up with. And so, 
Uh, I think that this is this is a, a problem for all ideologically inclined uh, political organizations. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I think I think it does seem to be. I mean, but that's something also that seems like there's at least at this point, and maybe this is just because I am younger, and this is kind of how, how a lot of young people I talk to think. But it does seem like there's almost a tipping point of the actual structures of politics as it is. Like there's all these sort of poisonous tendencies and and methodologies that have been sort of going unchecked and that a lot of it is broken. Like I hear a lot of people mention, you know, oh, this is the end of the Republican Party or the end of the Democratic Party because it's actually coming to a head where people are finally like, I actually don't know if I like being a Democrat. You know, they're like, I did it with my family was that, my parents are that, or, you know, or same with Republicans. And, uh, and again, for me, it's hard because I never know. A lot of this sort of like the world is really changing is not always that's a mindset a lot of people get into at specific ages that sometimes just changes so i'm always trying to be aware of that but it does seem like everyone across the board feels that way they feel like there's they need to examine their own you know especially if it comes from their family like because a lot of people adopt things from their parents because of course why would your parents not know you know what i mean like they're your first pieces of wisdom they're the first you know wisdom incarnate that you actually run and into. even though you know that they perhaps were not telling you the truth about santa claus that, that, that so so perhaps they're not always right. scrupulously honest that you, that you would anticipate they would not knowingly mislead you about right. various things exactly um so i want to just for like a little bit of the end here i'd love to talk a little bit more about the actual students of liberty the stuff that you go and talk overseas on and uh is there I don't I hate asking people to sort of compile like a top five or a cherry pick like certain things because I'm sure every experience is different and very interesting and very fulfilling. But what would you say is sort of some of the more interesting experiences you've had speaking to maybe a culture you weren't as familiar with and then and how that affected you? Yes. The, well, first of all, it's it's an extraordinary honor to be to be asked to go and address uh, students for liberty events and not just students. I mean, I, I have the honor of addressing a lot of different uh, organizations of, around the world. This, for example, this year I've I've addressed conferences, um, meetings, the you know demonstrations in Mexico, Spain, Argentina, excuse me, um, um, Australia, and Brazil. And there there's still a couple more weeks in the United, this this year, so I I don't know I might be pulled away uh, for, uh, for 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 extended duty elsewhere. Um, it's a it's a great honor to be able to address people, and I'm always flattered that anybody wants to hear anything that I have to say. The arguably the most interesting thing was um, Students for Liberty have established uh, a tremendous set of organizations in what used to be, shall we say, communist countries, the East Bloc. Uh, I've spent um, several several times uh, uh, addressed several conferences in what used to be parts of Yugoslavia. And of course, Yugoslavia broke up in a horribly violent manner. And it's fascinating to talk to young people whose parents grew up looking very much at that iron fist. The velvet glove had already come off. They were looking at that iron fist. And talking to them about ideas of liberty, these were young people, their parents saw the big state up close and personal. And that was very interesting. Also, a couple of years ago, um, I had the opportunity to address the uh, the big Students for Liberty conference coordinators uh, meeting, where they Students for Liberty, of course, is an international organization. The young people who serve as regional coordinators in the United States they got they get together every summer, and a couple of years ago, their conference was at Vanderbilt University, and I was I was given the honor of giving their sort of their keynote address, and I chose to talk about. Uh, what has changed since I started Students for Individual Liberty here at UVA? Students for Individual Liberty at University of Virginia, I'm told, is the longest-running libertarian organization in the United States history, continuously-running organization. I was I was the father, the mother, the delivering physician. So I decided to talk about what has changed over the 30 years, because it, it, I had founded Students for Individual Liberty 30 years before, um, and so I talked about this, and I, I started off by pointing out that when I started Students for Individual Liberty, there was this thing called the Soviet Union. <laughs> and and I, I looked at, I, I tried to look at the many different things that have changed, a goodly number of which have moved us in a liberty-oriented direction. For example, the rights of women are far more secure now than they once were. The, the rights of people who have, shall we say, different affectional preferences uh, are, are now protected. A lot of the things that now, you know, used to be criminal are now 
you know, completely legal. Uh, we're now seeing a substantial movement toward liberalizing uh, laws with respect to recreational habits, drug use, for example. Uh, now, of course, my drug, uh, alcohol, has been legal now for, for, for several years in the United States. It was, it was once, you know, uh, there were severe problems with alcohol in terms of prohibition at one time. Now my drug of choice, beer, is, is, is legal. Uh, we've seen a lot of changes in terms of how people perceive the libertarian perspective. There was a time, uh, say, if you go back to the foundation of the Mount, the Mount Pelerin Society in 1947, where classical liberalism or libertarianism was in, frankly, very bad shape because the dominant orthodoxy, political orthodoxy, particularly in the West, was what I'll call welfare state liberalism. In other words, the idea is, yes, you have nominal ownership of the means of production, private property, but it's heavily regulated, heavily controlled, heavily taxed. If you come forward from that period of time, the explosion of interest in the basic libertarian perspective, particularly in intellectual circles, I think has been nothing short of extraordinary. Young people, in many cases creme de la creme young intellectuals, are analyzing institutions of society from what I'll call a libertarian perspective. And from what I've seen, people on the other side of the ideological fence, or other, other, other sides, because it's not necessarily just one side, right. in many cases, I see them as being very much concerned that bright, talented young people are increasingly of libertarian disposition. One of the big issues, by the way, is that the libertarian movement is consistently anti-war, at least the sort of wars that we've seen. We do not believe in getting the United States to be the world's policeman. We have neither the technical competence nor the moral charge to be the world's policeman. Libertarians have been articulating for many years the view that it is not the business of the United States to go around the world and, frankly, to kill people in great big bleeding batches. And more and more, I think that people on, shall we say, these other sides of the political divide, they see the power, the appeal of a general framework of individual liberty. You should be able to live your life the way you see fit as long as you don't hurt other people, as long as you don't take their stuff, as long as you don't lie to them. You should be able to do pretty much what you want. That is a very powerful philosophy. And I think that representatives of other philosophies, they see that more and more young people are starting to analyze the perspective. They are starting to analyze the social institutions from that libertarian perspective. Now, they don't necessarily come to libertarian conclusions because, as I said previously, reasonable people can sometimes look at the same evidence and come to very different conclusions. But I think more and more people are starting to see that there is a great deal of power in these ideas of liberty and responsibility. I'll also say, if I may, that I think the idea of liberty and responsibility really is a, it's a philosophy of love because we're willing to say to people, I may disagree completely with how you choose to live your life, but as long as you don't violate the rights of others, I'm not going to hit you over the head with the big stick of the state. You can do as you see fit as long as you stay within certain bounds in terms of violating the rights of others. I think that's a very powerful philosophy, and I think that now the ideological competitors are starting to run scared because, again, more and more we're seeing bright, talented young people who are, first of all, uh, they're self-identifying as libertarians. And even those who don't are actually starting, to, at least on a lot of important issues, to say, wait a minute, these libertarians, even if I disagree with them, they're making some very important points. And I see this as, as great progress. Yeah, that's that's amazing to experience that in such in such an area that is, I, I know you keep saying it's not quite one side or one the other side of the curtain, but having people whose experiences have come from a lot of different regimes and regime changes that they and their parents have lived through. Um, and it does, it ties back really interesting to sort of what we mentioned at the beginning where you were saying that these ideas of individual liberty and personal responsibility, people come to them from a lot of different places, you know, and it isn't really just one side or the other. It's, you know, it's a reaction to just seeing that those are acceptable ideas and beneficial ideas to focus on um, and sort of knowing some of them, unfortunately, know what it's like to not have that. You know, I mean, and everything from, you know, extreme communism to extreme military dictatorships to benign dictatorships that still limit, you know, your ability to vote or, you know, own property. All these things, you know, they're, they're so they can manifest so differently, but they all have the same effect, which is that people are like, I don't feel like I have control or or can even really, you know, discuss my situation in that way. 
So it, it is. I think it's really fascinating because I'm. I mean, I've traveled, but I I find myself very lacking in a lot of knowledge of certain areas and Eastern Europe and a lot of that uh, history and current states of it. I I don't think I'm very aware of what definitely not what the younger people are thinking. So it's it's interesting to see your experience. And would you say I know you mentioned specifically this Yugoslav, you know, post Yugoslavian area, um, but would you say that that experience is similar to like Brazil? And yes, I other, would. Other uh, we're, well. we're seeing exactly. And of course, Brazil, <laughs> as uh, someone who uh, is interested in Brazil, both for the food and the football, uh, <laughs> um, I've, I've actually paid a little attention to what's gone on in Brazil over the last 50 years. And of course, they came out of a military dictatorship. Uh, it wasn't all that long ago. In fact, we're, it's, it's just 50 years ago that Brazilian student radicals kidnapped the American ambassador. Um, and held him. This was in 1969. So um, things, uh, 50 years ago is a long time to be sure, but these societies, the societies in in Central and South America, have had enormous problems with military uh, dictatorship, in some cases communism, and more and more, again, young people, when they have the opportunity to weigh liberty and responsibility versus other competing institutional arrangements, more and more they're finding that libertarian perspective to be attractive. Um, now, I'm not ready to plant the libertarian flag yet because I, I don't think that, I think it takes people a while to see what sort of benefits those societies will have. Again, I think it was T.S. Eliot who referred to the provincialism of time. If you've grown up in a society where you've never known what, 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 what real liberty and responsibility can bring forth, you're going to be naturally cautious about moving in that direction because the greater the degree of, of liberty, the greater latitude people have for doing bad things. Right. And again, a lot of people who favor a much larger government, say, in the United States than I would, it's not because they're bad people. It's not because they're stupid. Many of them actually would agree on an awful lot with me, but they have very real concerns about if you allow liberty in these areas, are you going to have a society that's much less good than what we now have? And once again, it's it's incumbent upon those of us of libertarian disposition to try to explain what it is that we'd like to see and then to show good reasons why we think it would be better. And again, that responsibility is on us. Right. So it seems like your outlook on all this experience that you've had with both these big L and the little L <laughs> um, sort of growing and, and being discussed in the world is that while while there may be some cartoonification still going around of a third-party system as there kind of always has been, and it's an unfortunate symptom that at least in your own experience of talking to people on a one-to-one level that the little L seems to be, seems to be growing, seems I to think really so. be spreading. I think so. At the very least, I think people are starting to realize where the real disagreements are. And I've been in enough discussions where I had to, frankly, waste time clearing away the very bad caricatures. And it was a waste of time because there are reasonable disagreements that people can have. There are plenty of people with whom I would have tremendous disagreements about their public policy positions. Again, it's not because they're bad people. It's not because they lack in some sort of intellectual capacity. It's not necessarily even that much that we disagree on basic principles. But sometimes people weigh risks very, very differently. And so, again... I think that I, I like to think that I have done at least a decent job in helping people understand what libertarians are really all about, or at least what this libertarian is really right. all about. Which is really all you can do, it, seem, it seems to be, since it does, since to, to sort of mandate what, what all libertarians are about would be some, almost well, <laughs> naturally going against libertarian beliefs. In fact, so. I've actually had a, a, a friend of mine mm-hmm. who was an academic here at the university, a professor here at the university, somebody whom I greatly respect who disagrees with me on all manner of public policy issues. But this, I was actually quite flattered, um, honored indeed. He said, Jim, if everyone were like you, libertarianism would work. <laughs> and I, I, I took that as a, as a very nice compliment. And, and, and of course, quite, quite possibly he's right. Maybe, maybe it does require uh, a, a very large fraction of people to have a libertarian perspective before that perspective will actually produce a better society than what we have or what we're likely to have any under under uh, other uh, institutional arrangements. Um, by the way, my crystal ball broke a long time ago. I, I'm, I'm not good at making predictions. There's an old joke about forecasting is hard, particularly when it concerns the future. 
And so I, I don't make a lot of predictions. Right. However, I do feel reasonably comfortable saying that I think we will see greater respect for the general libertarian perspective. More and more people, I think, will come to adopt it. And more and more people will understand what it is that libertarians are talking about. So that, again, when the disagreements occur, at least the disagreements will be over real things as opposed to people talking past each other because they have bad caricatures. Right. Well, I definitely feel like even in the short time that I've sort of talked to you here and then also gone to the salon and really, you know, tried to immerse myself in it, I definitely feel like I've learned like a whole lot. I mean, I feel it feels much more demystified and much more. The cartoonification is is gone, I think, uh, in my mind. But I think I, I think, of course, that like you've said about, you know, the current institutions having the same struggles and that I'm sure that that's hard for everything in its infancy, sure. even though you could even argue that the philosophy is not in its infancy. This is a pervasive and lifelong philosophy that has always been around that is just sort of being discussed in a different way with slightly different terminologies. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, I, I've really enjoyed this interview. I think we should probably call it. It's been about <laughs> an hour and six minutes. Um well, I, I'm 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 always happy, as as my colleagues will tell you. I'm always happy to flap my gums. I can I can be asked to talk about all manner of things, and, right. but I I very much appreciate your giving me the opportunity, and I hope that whoever listens to this will find my uh, find my comments worthy of their time. Yeah, and actually, that that's good. I I would love to wrap up everything with just sort of what what is your advice to people who want to learn? Like, if they can't you know come to you or go to the sort of conferences that Students for Liberty does on their own personal time. Well, th- this What's might the surprise you. The first, thing, the first thing I would suggest is ask you, a- a- learn yourself. Ask yourself questions about what is it that you really believe. And then if you, if you want to learn more about libertarian philosophy, uh, li- if you want to learn more about libertarian political positions, then you know, I'm happy to talk to, to anybody <laughs> about these things. I don't, by the way, I don't represent myself as the voice of libertarianism. I mean, when, when you talk to me, you're getting my particular perspective on these things. But I'd like to think that my perspective is actually reasonably representative of what you would hear if you talk to pretty much any libertarian. So uh, I would say, first of all, examine yourself. Ask yourself what you really believe. You know, what do you feel is the appropriate role of government? When is force legitimately applied against other people? How do you justify real property? In other words, this is your part of the meadow, that's your part of the meadow. Um, Ask yourself what you really believe. And then once you've identified your own beliefs, then you can start looking to to other philosophies, other political philosophies. Um, And there are many places. There there are many people who've written books on the general libertarian perspective. Um, And I can always, you know, in terms of just off the top of my head, um, there was a book written by David Bowes of the Cato Institute, sort of a libertarian primer. That would be that might be a good place to start. But there's several there's several works that I think would ease people into an understanding of what uh, what these crazy libertarians are sometimes talking about. Yeah, and I, I would definitely I'm, I'm going to try my best to include links to everything that we sure. sort of we've mentioned sure. once I go through and listen, um, even everything from Milton Friedman maybe all the way to <laughs> links to the actual students for sure. individual liberty. Um, anyway, thank you so much for your time. I. Go ahead and we'll wrap this up. By the that. pleasure is all mine. Thank you for yeah. allowing me the pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much, Jim. Thanks again to Jim Lark for coming and sitting down with me for an hour to go into detail about the personal philosophy and ideology of the libertarian mind. You can see more about the organization Students for Liberty at studentsforliberty.org, or you can visit the Libertarian Party's official website at lp.org. If you'd like to get in contact with me about working on projects, you can find me at allbriandoes.com or support me on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash allbriandoes.